The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. Logan's Run started life as a 1967 novel by William F. Nolan and George Clayton Johnson before becoming a moderately successful film in 1976. The concept was durable enough that the authors expanded Logan's story through two further novels, Logan's World and Logan's Search, and there did seem to be interest in a sequel to the film, which, despite lacklustre reviews, did decent box office and attracted a small but loyal fan base. And then, Star Wars happened. You'd think this would lead to a fast-tracking of any Logan's Run film sequel. After all, the IP was still alive and present in people's mind, kept more so by a Marvel comic series that debuted in January of 1977. It's therefore a surprise to see that, in lieu of a film sequel, what was fast-tracked was a TV series. Initially produced under the title Logan, presumably because running is hard work, cooler heads prevailed and the TV show was fast-tracked under its proper name, making its debut in September of 1977, a little over a year after the film's cinematic release. The quick turnaround was not without its casualties, not only cancelling the proposed film sequel, but also bringing a premature end to the Marvel comic series, which was canned after only seven issues in July of 1977. See, Marvel only had the rights to the film version, and the TV producers didn't want a competing version of the story on the stands at the same time as the refined version, as seen on TV. The series dropped with a 75-minute pilot episode, erring in a 90-minute time slot with commercials. It was written by the co-writer of the novel, William F. Nolan, Saul David, who produced the film, and Leonard Katzman. The use of the word and, rather than an ampersand, implies the latter did not work with the former on the script. More on this later. The telefilm was directed by Robert Day. The TV series was freely and liberally adapted from both the book and the film, adding elements not present in both, as well as losing some of the more adult approach to the material. The pilot movie capitalises on the film, cannibalising costumes, props and footage to save costs, but retains the overall look and general feel. It even features the same basic premise, but strangely eschews Logan's entire character arc. In the film, Logan, played by Michael York, is a sandman who loves his life. After all, it's a hedonistic paradise with hookers on call, drugs aplenty, and a free and easy lifestyle. They don't have to work, they don't pay tax. What's not to like? He lives, as does everyone, in a few interconnected domed cities, never to experience the outside world. Any who do try to venture outside are hunted down and killed by the Sandmen, which is Logan's job. 
Logan and his partner Francis, played by Richard Jordan, hunt down people who try to escape Carousel, the religious ceremony whereby all people over the age of 30 are subjected to renewal, allegedly to be reborn in a new body. The days are counted down by life clocks, small crystals embedded in the palms of their hand. Of course, Carousel and Renewal is all bollocks, as Jessica, a luminous Jenny Agatha, explains to Logan. The computer-controlled domed cities are simply keeping the populace under the thumb and controlling the population. Some of the runners escaped the Sandman's glare and have found Sanctuary, a mythical place outdoors where people can live, grow old and die without fear of control. Logan is tasked by the computers to find Sanctuary and destroy it, but along the way discovers that life in the Dome Cities is no life at all, despite the freedom to kill, shag and get high all the time. Logan's character arc is to learn that freedom is to be cherished, and sometimes that freedom has to be earned. And maybe, just maybe, there are people over the age of 30 who can be trusted. He also discovers with Jessica that lifelong relationships can develop and grow, which are sometimes more satisfying than the one-night hookups he's been experiencing so far. The series ditches this entire motivation from the get-go. Logan is now played by Gregory Harrison, who won the role from a shortlist featuring both Nicholas Hammond and Dirk Benedict. He's a carousel sceptic from the start, and so it doesn't take much convincing from Jessica, now played by former Von Trapp child Heather Menzies, channeling her best Farrah Fawcett, to run with him and try and find Sanctuary. Francis, Randy Powell replacing Richard Jordan, also has significantly different motivations. In the film, he's motivated by anger and rage at his friend's betrayal. Throughout the movie, it's pointed out that Francis doesn't think, he doesn't question, he just accepts what is, whereas Logan always had a bit more of a probing mind. Francis discovers in the pile episode that there's a council of elders who secretly run the domed cities, rather than the computers of the film, and it's they who run Carousel as a method of population control. They tell Francis they will allow him to grow old and join the council if he brings back Logan and Jessica to testify that Sanctuary is nothing but a fantasy, thus allowing them to retain control as there is a preponderance of runners lately, which has led to civil unrest. Now this makes some sense in terms of establishing why Francis keeps pursuing Logan throughout the series, but it doesn't explain why he always seems to have a team of Sandmen with him, normally different ones. What's in it for them? Is he going back every week for new men? Is Francis not bothered by learning Carousel is a lie? Is Logan just travelling in one big circle that Francis and his Sandmen can keep finding him? Do these Sandmen not wonder why outside the Dome Cities isn't the post-apocalyptic wasteland they've been told about? Presumably, if they're all like Francis and taught not to question the natural order of things, they don't give it a second thought. Interestingly, one of the other Sandmen in the pilot is played by Michael Bean, and he knows a thing or two about post-apocalyptic wastelands and relentless pursuit. Ultimately, though, this is a pretty big dumbing down of all three main characters' motivations. In the film, Francis was a deranged madman, a zealot, devoted to the religious order that was Carousel, and his fanaticism led him to feel utterly betrayed by his friend, and that's what made him dangerous. He was Ahab to Logan's white whale. 
In the series, he's a turncoat, taking his 30 pieces of silver for selling out his friend, making him the betrayer rather than Logan. Likewise, having Logan be a sceptic from the opening scene also neuters his character. He was a man who loved his life, the sex, the glamour of being a sandman, to kill with impunity and have people fear him. He got off on it. Not as much as Francis, but still. His realisation that the society he lived in was built on a lie was a powerful character beat. Here, he's a rather bland leading man with no edge or conflict. The casting of Logan and Francis doesn't help. Typical shorthand when casting two waspy leads in the 70s was to cast one fur-herd and one dark-herd, and this was indeed the case in the film. Here, Harrison and Powell look too much alike, to the point where when Logan knocks Francis over the head to escape with Jessica, I couldn't tell which one had hit which one. Speaking of Jessica, she isn't as motivated or as outspoken about her cause either. In the film, she's an insurrectionist, all about the downfall of a society she feels is corrupt and unfulfilling. In the show, she has none of that bite or verve. The main arc of the film is covered in the first 22 minutes of the pilot movie. Logan and Jessica escape, find a convenient vehicle that runs on solar power, and flee to locate Sanctuary with Francis in hot pursuit. This first half hour basically sets up the series template going forth. It's a standard running man setup, similar to The Fugitive, The Incredible Hulk, Battlestar Galactica, and the book that really started it all, Les Miserables. Logan and Jessica wander from town to town looking for sanctuary, similar to Banner seeking a cure, Kimball seeking the murderer, and the Galactica seeking Earth, all fleeing a constant threat. Jack McGee, Lieutenant Gerard, the Cylons, Francis. It's tried and true. It's not really a surprise that Logan's run was more of a canter. Another film to TV transplant, Planet of the Apes, had exactly the same premise, as did Fantastic Journey, both of which had tanked in the ratings earlier in the decade. So Logan's chances of running for a while were not high. Logan and Jessica go through the same motions upon emerging into the outside world as they did in the film. They frolic in the sun, express surprise at the rain, and generally look upon nature with wonderment. In the film, remember, Logan and Jessica didn't even know what the sun was. Because this is a TV show of the 70s and not a film of the 70s, they do not take off their clothes and bathe naked, which is a real shame in the case of Heather Menzies, especially for those of us who remember her playboy pictorial, but does show that by bleeding the sex appeal out of the show, we are somehow missing one of the ways the dome cities are shown as being appealing. In the film, Logan and Jessica are clearly sexual beings, young and frisky, aided, no doubt, by the fact that Jenny Agatha was drop-dead gorgeous, and they spend as much time dressed as undressed. Apparently, the TV version of the Dome Cities is a largely sexless affair, and there's no hint that Logan and Jessica are an item. The idea of the Dome Cities being this free-love, hippie, commune-perfect society is somewhat lessened in the TV version, where there's no real indication that it's a gilded cage, like that of the film. Take all that out of it, and it's just a shopping mall. The violence of the film is also toned down, as you would expect, with the ray gun now featuring a stun setting, something not present in the movie, and Logan doesn't take the same glee in murdering people. Carousel is also less violent. Despite this, Logan's run was considered by the National Citizens Committee for Broadcasting to be, alongside Man from Atlantis and Wonder Woman, as one of the five most violent shows on television. 
In the UK, the show was treated as the kid-friendly entertainment it was, airing on the ITV network in the early Saturday evening time slot recently vacated by the aforementioned Man from Atlantis. It made its debut in January 1978, the same month as the BBC launched Blake 7 and that Star Wars went on countrywide general release. Science fiction was back in vogue. The pilot to Logan's run cost a then whopping $850,000. And I have to wonder where the money went. Sets and costumes mostly come from the film, with any other extras clothes being little more than rags. All of the domed city material is stock footage, and the only real expense seems to be the solar car that Logan and Jessica used to pootle about in, and the fact that the series is constantly shot on location. Overall, though, it doesn't look any more expensive than the average episode of Starsky and Hutch. Subsequent episodes would allegedly have a budget of $450,000, half of the pilot, which presumably means the solar car cost at least $400,000. More on the price of the episodes later. Now, earlier on, I alluded to Francis's motivations for pursuing Logan and that they had been toned down. Once he gets outside, for example, and can clearly see that sanctuary acolytes are correct, that the air and the water are perfectly breathable, he should alter his beliefs, right? In the film, this is irrelevant to Francis's pursuit, but on TV, it should at least give him pause for thought. The addition of a council of elders who are the ones really running the city, a metaphor of the old boys network that works much better nowadays, gave Francis a different motivation, to capture Logan in exchange for being allowed to live past 30, meaning Francis knows Carousel is a lie and just doesn't care. Now, bear all this in mind when I tell you that leafing through old episodes of Starlog for this episode, I found buried in issue 8 a review of the pilot to Logan's run but from before it erred. The pilot reviewed in Starlog was only an hour instead of 90 minutes. And whilst I can't be sure, I'm convinced that this scene with Francis was added later to try and add weight to Francis's decision. Also added, I suspect, is a pointless diversion in the midsection of the pilot, where Logan and Jessica hook up with a bunch of humans living not far from the domed city. This seems to set up that Sanctuary is a real place, making Logan and Jessica's search for a real thing, rather than the philosophical belief it was in the film. Sadly, the series can't seem to make its mind up on this, vacillating between it being real or a myth on an almost weekly basis. This section in the middle is easily cut, with no real relevance to the rest of the episode. It also begs the question, if this colony is so close to the domed cities, why haven't the Elders sent the Sandman out there to wipe them out already? This flabby midsection also delays Logan and Jessica from finding the third main character, a new addition featured in neither the film or the book, Rem, played by Donald Moffat. Logan and Jessica come across another colony, this time of robots, all being maintained by a superior model of robot, or android as he prefers, Rem. I didn't really see the point of Rem as part of this pilot. He's not seeking sanctuary, he's not running from the domed city, he's not seeking his own humanity like other Andro creations like Data or Bishop. He's just kind of there. He seems quite content to be an android. Rem can't have been an afterthought, though, as he's mentioned in the Starlog review, so he must have been in the original 60-minute version of the pilot. 
Over the series, however, Rem easily becomes the best character, partially due to the writers actually giving him something to do, and partially due to Donald Moffat, who's clearly the best actor on the show. There's a running subplot throughout the show that robots became somewhat ubiquitous in the years between the end of Civilization and the Dome Cities rising up, but it's never really explored. The TV series kind of glosses over as well that Box, the robot seen in the film, is of a much lesser quality than Rem, who can easily pass for human. Starlog gave the truncated pilot a decent review, but the network weren't happy for whatever reason. Nolan and David were fired, and the network brought in Leonard Katzenberg, Ivan Goff, and Ben Roberts, the creators of Charlie's Angels. In a Starlog interview in issue 9 of that magazine, the latter were at least honest enough to call themselves science fiction novices, and they did try to write the ship, bringing in DC Fontana as a story editor, as well as a number of other writers from Star Trek, proving they did at least seem to want to learn and make a decent show. Sadly, Fontana would learn that this wasn't the case. In an interview in Cinescape, Fontana was quoted as saying, Initially they, Goff and Roberts, assured us that we would be the people writing the scripts, since we understood science fiction. But they persisted in coming behind us and rewriting, often adding stupid ideas. Fontana also disputed the budget, saying episodes were often made for as little as $170,000. The pilot episode isn't that bad. It's actually quite enjoyable. It's a perfectly decent slice of mid-70s science fiction that predates Galactica and lives in a world where Star Wars is only four months old. As such, it's not really trying to be Star Wars. It's trying to be the fugitive, which is its main problem. There are interesting ideas to be explored in Logan's run, but I suspect that 14 episodes isn't really going to get into them in any depth. Like all the shows of the era, the high concept was present but there wasn't really any further development after that. William F. Nolan disliked the premise of the series intensely, saying, Their idea was to run Logan around in a car every week, encounter a new society, solve their problems, and then he would return to the surface, get to his car, and drive away. I felt that wasn't the right way to handle the concept. Still, many shows of the era managed to turn out entertaining episodes, even within a strict formula. The series proper doesn't get off to a good start, though, with The Collectors, a hackneyed science fiction idea of having aliens show up to collect numerous different species. I don't know that Logan's run really needs aliens adding to the mix, especially given the other areas it could be exploring. In addition to The Fugitive, Logan's run also wants to be the next Star Trek, rather than carving out its own path, which again doesn't make it terribly unique of the time. Every science fiction series of the 70s wanted to be Star Trek. The Collectors is notable only for reuniting Heather Menzies with another Von Trapp sister, Lost in Space's Angela Cartwright. Things don't improve with Capture, yet another TV rip-off of The Most Dangerous Game. Now, when done well, as in the Incredible Hulk episode of The Snur, this can be a hugely entertaining hour. But here it's just dumb. For one, how come two people, who must be aware a holocaust happened, have just started hunting people for fun? Don't they have more important things to do, like survive? Secondly, Logan and Francis are pretty bad killers, considering that that's their job, which I presume is a mandate from the network. Still, there's a nice moment between Logan and Francis, as each tries to explain their own point of view, and more character-based scenes like this would have been appreciated. 
The main problem with capture though is it takes forever to get going. We're over halfway into the episode before we get to the point of it. Logan and Francis versus the Hunters for Jessica's life. And the fights, when they happen, are pretty unspectacular, including one really dumb bit where a cage literally appears out of nowhere. Ultimately, capture is a runaround with no real danger or excitement. It doesn't get much better with the innocence in which Logan, Jessica and Rem find a small research facility in which two robots are tasked with looking after a precocious teenage girl named Lisa. Being that this is a partial rip-off of Star Trek's Charlie X, you can guess where it's going. The innocence isn't bad. In fact, it's moderately entertaining. The show is at least taking itself moderately seriously, with Rem providing some humour, and the writers clearly wanting to add a Kirk-Spock-McCoy dynamic to the cast and increase the chances of the show being more like Star Trek. The aforementioned Michael Biehn would have been much better starring in Man Out of Time, a superior time travel story by David Gerald, writing under the pen name Noah Ward. Noah Ward. Noah Ward. I see what you did there, David. In lieu of being, Paul Shenar stars as David Eakins, a scientist determined to prevent the nuclear destruction that caused Logan's future. For the first time since the show began, the topic of what exactly caused the nuclear war is answered, and the machinations of time travel are handled very well in an episode that actually pulls off its premise. The characters all seem to benefit from being intelligently written. Who'd have thunk it? A Man Out of Time is the best episode yet. Half-Life is another Star Trek rip-off, this time of The Enemy Within. Logan, Jessica and Rem come across a small civilization that has conquered undesirable elements by putting all the population through a machine that splits them into two, one positive and one cast-off. The cast-offs are then, as the name implies, cast out to live as barbarians outside the commune. Jessica is one such person, split into two beings. Logan and Rem, not bound by a tedious non-interference directive, decide to intervene, mainly to rescue Jessica, who has been processed. Half-Life, again, isn't bad. It's frothy fun, with Heather Menzies clearly enjoying herself, and the guest cast are augmented by William Smith in a dual role, and a very young and very beautiful Kim Cattrall. But it's not the fastest-moving episode of television ever made. Crypt by Harlan Ellison turns the ship around. Logan, Jessica and Rem uncover a bunker designed to survive the nuclear fallout. Inside are six bodies in cryogenic freeze with a recorded message. The six bodies are six specially chosen scientists who can help rebuild society, but they have radiation sickness. A video informs Logan that a vaccination was perfected, but not injected into the scientist before the bunker personnel all fell ill and died. Two vials, with three injections, each are available, but one of the vials is broken, meaning Logan, Jessica and Rem must discover which of the three people to save. The task is made all the more difficult when Rem discovers one of the scientists is not who they say they are. Crypt has an interesting moral dilemma at its heart, and is in fact a very good episode, showing there was promise to this premise. After one at least entertaining and two quite good episodes, Logan stumbles with Fear Factor, featuring a guest appearance by Jared Martin, 
Presumably he wandered over from the set of Fantastic Journey, which had just been cancelled, and landed a role in Logan's run. Logan, Jessica and Rem stumble across an insane asylum that is still running hundreds of years after the nuclear apocalypse. That anyone is still around after all this time is stretching credibility. Why have these people continued to perform their old jobs? Who are their patients? Where is their electricity coming from? How did they survive? Sadly, if the viewer is asking these questions instead of paying attention to the story, the story clearly isn't that engaging. Jessica is reunited with another form of Von Trapp in the next episode, The Judas Goat, this time in the form of Spider-Man himself, Nicholas Hammond. Hammond is a Sandman whose face has been altered via the new U facial reconstruction that we saw Farrah Fawcett modelling in the film to resemble Hal 14, a runner of Jessica's acquaintance. Hal has been offered the same deal as Francis, bring Logan back and be offered a seat at the old boys club. Francis has been AWOL for a while, missing from a number of episodes, so maybe the old guys are getting antsy. Hal tells Logan and Jessica that revolt is happening in the domed cities, largely as a result of Logan's exploits, and he convinces them to return to help with the insurrection. I don't know how news of Logan's exploits are getting back to the domed cities, they don't seem to have cell phones or anything like that, but whatever. Lance Legault also appears in this episode as the first runner, who Logan convinces to return with them to fuel the rebellion. Of course, Legault isn't all that he seems, because he's Lance Legault, and Hammond, normally cast as the good guy, does a really good job in his duplicitous role. After the mediocre fear factor, the Judas Goat is pretty good. Sure, it's dumb that Logan's crew can get back to the City of Domes in such a short amount of time, as this implies that they haven't really moved very far, but there's some decent science fiction ideas here. Legault offers up the intriguing notion that sanctuary is where you find it, rather than a specific place, and this idea will be carried on throughout the rest of the series. Sadly, Legault, the runner, has become the very thing he's running away from, by essentially using computerised collars to keep his people in pleasant slavery, not dissimilar to what the Dome Cities are doing. Die a hero or live long enough to become the villain is a good theme of heroic fiction. There's also the interesting idea put forth that the Dome City's Council of Elders are so protective of the way things are that they keep throwing people at the problem rather than acknowledging that a culture has to change and evolve. If the series could have tapped into this level of satire on a more regular basis, even if unintentional, it may have had more interesting things to say. It is, after all, a science fiction show. If you can't open up commentary on society as it is now in a science fiction show... Well, can you do it? The best episodes so far have offered up a moral dilemma, crypt, or a mystery for Logan to solve, man out of time. In this episode, both Logan and Rem are challenged. Logan is caught between his desire to find sanctuary and his need to bring about change in his world, whilst Rem, similar to Data in the Next Generation episode The Most Toys, is confronted with the notion that murder may not always be a crime if it's for the greater good or to save a life. The Judas Goat, like Crypt and Man Out of Time, was by another former Trek writer, John Meredith Lucas, and is another promising episode, with a number of really good ideas and a beautifully ironic ending. More episodes like this, and maybe Logan would have carried on running. The next episode, Future Past, is notable for featuring Marriott Hartley as another android who Rem can't get near, because every time he does, Sparks fly. 
literally. Yes, that's the level of humour in this show. Ignoring the lame comedy and the clips, this does have one interesting moment where Francis tells Logan that he's on a fool's quest. There's no evidence Sanctuary even exists. It's a novel idea to allow the antagonist to be correct, and this is following up something said in The Judas Goat. Francis isn't wrong. Nobody Logan has met so far has heard of Sanctuary, and Logan has found no independent evidence of Sanctuary's existence. If the series had a direction, this could have been an interesting way to turn it on its head. The Judas Goat already planted the seed that Sanctuary was where you found it, and this could have led to Logan and Jessica seriously analysing whether it would be better to settle down themselves or return to the Dome Cities to try and restore some measure of freedom to the people. Despite these interesting ideas, though, Future Past is another example of a facility, in this case a dream analysis clinic, still running after all these years. Why? Who's coming to this clinic? And why does the show insist on using Star Trek bridge sound effects? It's very distracting. Still, there's an eerie ambiance to the dream sequences, and the conclusion is a good moment for Rem. Carousel is the memory loss episode. Logan is shot by a dart and instantly forgets the last year of his life, reverting to being a sandman in the domed city. If the show were made today, this and the Judas Goat would have been linked, as having Logan, Jessica and Rem return to the domed city twice in two episodes is a bit silly story-wise, but it does reveal that the actual society Logan is running away from is a stronger well from which to draw stories than the usual running around the outskirts of LA looking for settlers. Maybe William F. Nolan knew what he was talking about. Carousel is another decent episode. At one point, Logan himself even calls Sanctuary invented by runners to encourage other runners, which lends credence to the idea that the writers are seeding this notion that Sanctuary isn't a real place. Rem's suggestion that Jessica seduce Logan to restore his memory, and this weirding her out, though, is very odd. What happened to the hedonistic society of the film? Logan and Jessica have been running around in that little solar car, Jessica dressed only in those wispy, nearly-there outfits, for nearly a year, and they haven't been sexual partners? This seduction would have been far more powerful if Logan and Jessica were lovers, and Logan no longer remembered. There could have been a lot of decent drama generated from that scenario, instead of the chaste sub-high school level drama on display here. Sadly, this is the last decent episode of the series. Night Visitors is a tedious Scooby-Doo-style haunted house story. Turnabout tries by taking a detour into hardcore allegory, stepping into the shoes of the Handwives' tale. Logan, Jessica and Rem discover yet another culture that survived the Holocaust. This one represses its women, forcing them to cover their faces and treats them as second-class citizens, not allowed to speak unless spoken to. They also deny the populist books and access to learning, with the only reading matter being the holy book. Needless to say, Logan, Jessica and Rem are sentenced to death for the crime of not being like them. It's a promising beginning, attacking xenophobia and the idea that anyone not like us is somehow inherently evil, doesn't really explore that idea. Instead, it amps up the action, which is 
entertaining in its own way, culminating in a fight between Francis and guest star Gerald McCraney on his way to Simon & Simon. Stargate, written by comic scribe Denny O'Neill, was to be the last episode, and not a great note to go out on being yet another alien invasion storyline. Given that the Earth has been wiped out and there's not many humans left, invading this planet doesn't really seem like that much of a challenge. Logan's run was cut short, cancelled after 14 episodes. Some of this was the network not giving it a chance, bouncing it around the schedules, regularly changing the time and day, and some of it was a premise that wasn't really thought through. Logan doesn't seem to know where to run and what his goal is when he gets there. What direction is Sanctuary? Does Logan have any idea where they are headed or is he just driving aimlessly? Just how many human societies are out there? Why are all these societies living in complete ignorance of each other? Have they never met? Established trade routes? Opened a dialogue? Maybe even had a war with each other? Why do some places have power and others don't? Why are some aware of the dome cities and runners and sandmen, whilst others not five miles down the road aren't? Other fugitive-type shows address these issues. David Banner in The Hulk was actively seeking a cure, so he tended to head towards places and facilities that could help him in that quest. The Battlestar Galactica was aware of the direction the 13th tribe headed in to locate Earth and are following that path. Dr Richard Kimball was tracking his wife's killer, giving him a direction. But Logan and co. haven't a clue where they're going. The problem with the show as well is that it wants to be both The Fugitive and Star Trek, copying Star Trek's three-person lead and story ideas, but with none of the wit, charm or intelligence. Certainly the writers seem to want Logan, Jessica and Rem to be some kind of Kirk, McCoy and Spock rip-off, but Donald Moffat, as the best actor in the ensemble, sadly doesn't have scene partners of the calibre of William Shatner or DeForest Kelly to play off, or the quality of the writing of Star Trek. Which is weird, given how many of the writers worked on Star Trek. To her credit, Fontana was aware of the issues. In the same interview in Cinescape, she talked about the ideas they had for the future, had the show lasted. The most interesting being that Francis would join Logan and they would return to the domed city to try and bring it down from within. This is actually a pretty good idea, showing Francis capable of his own agency and acknowledging the problems in the society as created by the old men in charge. I would extrapolate on this idea and have Logan and Jessica return to the domed city to prove the elders are lying, only to be greeted with a collective shrug. After all, dome city life is pretty cool. We don't want to give all that up. And you think that's far-fetched, watch the news. Most people would rather take a hedonistic lifestyle where they drink, smoke and have sex constantly over a world where they have to work for a living and pay taxes. Could Logan and Jessica fight apathy? That could be a real problem for them to solve. For the time that it was made, Logan's run isn't at all bad. Its problems now weren't really problems then. Its similarity to other productions and the playing-it-safe nature of network TV of the time meant it was simply doing what the advertisers wanted it to do. A TV show from 1977 was never going to be serialised, and it was never really going to expand past its Colony of the Week formula. Taken on its own level, it's perfectly fine. Entertaining, even. Hell, it even has one or two really quite good episodes. Logan's run never really seemed to catch a break. 
The film was all but forgotten in the wake of Star Wars, the comics cancelled after a really short time, and the TV show, likewise, a blink-and-you'll-miss-it affair. Logan's Run always seems to be on the table for a reboot that, for whatever reason, never happens. But the ideas behind Logan's Run are still potent. Renewal is a lie. Sanctuary is what you make it. Run, runner. Run. New from Supermates Recordings. Chilling sounds from the house of Franklin Stein. The blood-curdling sounds of horror in one four-episode set. Featuring your favorite stars from classic spooky films. Lon Chaney Jr. and Bella Lugosi. Your father was Frankenstein, but your mother was the lightning. Peter Cushing and Stephanie Beecham. The nightmare's over. And Christopher Lee. I have returned to destroy you. Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. I'm gonna haunt him. That's what I'm gonna do. Mm-hmm. Heather Langenkamp and Johnny Depp. Do you believe in the Boogeyman? No. And Robert England. I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. Here's more. The hit House of Frankenstein theme by Terry O'Malley. Order now and you'll receive bonus comic stories featuring your favorite superheroes versus fiendish monsters. Offer ends October 31st, and it's not available in any store. Here's how to order. To order the chilling sounds from the House of Franklin Stein, save all credit card and COD charges by visiting FireAndWaterPodcast.com or search for Fire and Water Podcast Network or Supermates. Podcatchers are standing by. Okay, keen-eared listeners will have noticed that I haven't played the theme. Whereas I do normally play the theme. I will play the theme. I'll just explain that my reticence in this regard was largely due to the fact that whilst the theme itself is pretty good, they've overlaid a car alarm on top of it. Why would you do that? Nobody likes the sound of car alarms. They're irritating. Anybody who leaves their car alarm going off for more than 40 seconds is normally asking to be cast out the airlock. But anyway, here's the theme for your edification and delight. And it'll probably drive your dog insane. have a look at the email bag should we there's a couple of emails in today which is always nice i knew taking a break at work our first email tonight is from matt prather hello andrew hello matt 
waited until your web spinners episodes came to an end before sending this email. Not sure why. Well, I would hazard a guess, Matt, that it's because you like to be an informed person before you make your final judgment. You like to gather all of the evidence, look at all the angles, and then make your decision. Because you seem to be a very intelligent and erudite person to me. I particularly like your choice of podcast listening. I loved your choices. See, I told you. It's like, you know, I told you. Erudite and intelligent. I loved your choices for each volume and went digging through my collection for my own favourites through the decades. I have a love for the Frank Miller annuals and found a few others that might make it into a collection if I was helming the Spider-Man assemblage. The Frank Miller annuals, Frank Miller, Miller, the Frank Milieu annuals, oh, for God's sake, the Frank Miller annuals came very, very close for inclusion because I love both of them. I think there's some of Denny O'Neill's best work on the character from when he was writing Spider-Man, or ghost-writing Spider-Man, if you believe the rumours. Um, and obviously, Miller's art is exceptional in those two uh, particular issues. I I personally would probably lean towards Ben Sinister with Dilby, but that's just a personal preference. The Punisher one is exceptionally good as well. I considered them. I considered them because of Frank Miller's importance in the overall comic book firmament, Hall of Fame, if you will. But ultimately, I rejected them because you take away Frank Miller's art. And whilst the stories are good, they don't really offer much in terms of the overall development of the character. And I think that's what I was focusing on. But like in a pure best of assemblage uh either or both of those annuals would be included because they are great only for personal preference matt continues would it differ but nothing would make the books more representative of the rich history web of spider-man annual 2 maybe more of the punishers go-go boots seriously a wonderful overview of one of my favorite heroes great fun thanks matt prather well thank you matt i'm glad you enjoyed it if I had to pick someone in go-go boots, it would probably be Murray Jane or Gwen. But I'm not here to judge people's personal preference on those things. I am very much live and let live to each their own. Whatever you're doing, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. You, If you prefer the Punisher in go-go boots, well, that's your preference. I prefer Murray Jane, but that's just me. <laughs> oh, dear. Right. Yeah, Robert Ludwig has emailed in another erudite and intelligent listener because he's been listening a lot lately. I do love it when people say that. Andy, Robert. Much more terse beginning, I think. I just want to say that this is my first email to the palace, is it? I'll take your word for it, but, you know, I'm sure I've had mails from you before. I sent a small handful to Hey Kids... Ah, there you go. I sent a small handful to Hey Kids Comics over the years. There you go. But hadn't yet to the palace because I finally think... I have something to say. It is better to burn out than to fade away. Actually, that's, that's not what he says. I added that. And why wait till you've got something to say, Robert? I've had nothing to say for five years yet. I'm still doing this stuff. Since this past Saturday, August 21st, I have listened to 11 episodes as I'm doing different things. 11 episodes. My children don't listen to me for 11 episodes worth of time. 
working in the yard, taking a walk in the evenings whilst working during the day on my job. I'd gotten behind on many podcasts due to picking up a new one, so I'm trying to catch up. I started with Michalini McFarlane episode 4 and just listened to Web Spinners 3 of the 80s tonight. Here is a blab loop dem. Here are some of my thoughts on some of the episodes. One, episode 178, Burn Notice. This quickly became one of my favourites when it debuted, and for the first two and a half seasons, it was can't miss. Then life happened, and less time for TV, and here and there, I completely dropped off the show. My wife gave me the seven-season box set for my 40th birthday, and I have since watched them. I remember telling my wife that this was probably a show that was good for four seasons, and ultimately I was probably right. Whilst I enjoy some of the episodes in the later years, they're just not as much fun, in my opinion. I really think that in season four, they should have just one more episode after the season ender to basically have Michael get his final explanation and quit, get with Fiona, and decide what to do next. Uh, Yeah, that's valid. I think, um, yeah, it becomes a lot more serialised and serious in its latter three seasons. Yeah. Season four is probably the best place to call it a day. Episode 181, Kit vs. Car. Knight Rider was one of my favourite shows as a kid. Great television for eight to nine-year-old me. And whilst I forget specific episodes over the years, I remember the watching the show and wanting a talking self-driving car that could jump stuff with a turbo boost. If you have a notion, check the podcast Darth Vader's Bathroom, especially Season 0, Episode 1. Season zero? They can do that? It has a discussion with Stu Phillips, the composer of the theme tune. So it was neat to hear him talk about the show and the music. Stu, as you already know, did the theme to Battlestar Galactica. So I know you have some familiarity with his work. Oh, right. So Darth Vader's bathroom. I'll uh, make a note of that. And I'll be sure to check that out. For real geeks, that is, of course, what um, Michael calls Kit's Dash in the pilot, I think, isn't it? Because Jesse Mark referred to the command centre for Street Talk as looking like the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. So essentially, it's the same line of dialogue. Why do I remember this stuff? Number three, episode 185, Web Spinners in the 60s. I have read many of these stories thanks to the essentials that I picked up along the way. Nice picks overall. Episode 197, Web Spinners in the 80s. Was there something wrong with the 70s, Rob? I've read many of these stories over the years thanks to back issues, but I have a history with a couple of them from the 80s. Amazing 252, first amazing in the black costume. By chance, I went to the local drugstore to buy some comics. I picked out three, one of which was Amazing 252. I just saw the black costume and was like, what's this? Whilst I don't remember the specific issues, I know I picked up a Hulk book and a Superman book. Anyway, I read and reread Amazing 252 so much the cover came off. Ultimately, I think the issue was thrown up by my mum after a move. Amazing 259 is the Murray Jane story. My grandparents had a few comics and books for grandkids to read, and one of them was issue 259. I remember reading that so many times I could almost tell the entire story years after not reading it. Unfortunately, that issue was lost after my grandparents passed away in the early 90s. I've since gotten a new copy of both from the back issue bins for one dollar. Uh, but you can't get them for a dollar now. They bring back happy memories. Sorry for the long email. No need to apologise. Thank you for all the episodes you do. You're very welcome. I enjoy listening. Good, I make it for you. Hell, your show's even made me buy some things here or there. Well, that's nice, but that, that's money that come my way, sadly. It has also made me search out items, comics, TV shows, etc. that I may never have heard of before, but sounded interesting thanks to you. 
Have a nice day. Well, you too, Robert. It's very kind of you. Thank you very much. Um, Nevada, Iowa. Do you work in outer space by any chance? P.S. I will wave to you when you read my name for this email. I always do that when my name is read on a podcast. Does anyone else do that? I I can't answer that question for you, Robert. I, I can honestly say I've never waved when I've heard my name on a podcast. When I hear my name on a podcast, I normally go, well, shit, what have I done now? It's normally my reaction. But anyway, thank you for emailing it. Thank you, Matt, for emailing it. It was much appreciated. I will be back next time with an all-new episode. May take a little bit longer because I'm looking at Friday the 13th of the series. So there may be, there's a lot of episodes of that, obviously. And I have to fit that in around being back at work. But that's hopefully what we'll be back with next time. Hankidscomics at virginmedia.com is the email address. Email me, drop me a line, say hi. And I'll see you all again real soon. It's all going to be okay. Goodbye. Logan, now played by Gregory Harrison, Gwegaway, release Gwegaway.